Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Dr. Seagal Ben-Prath, professor of education at the University of Pennsylvania and fellow at the Edmund J. Saffer Center for Ethics at Harvard University. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, the CLT is coming up on December 5th. Registration details can be found on our website, cltexam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Welcome back to Anchor, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. I'm your host, Jeremy Tate. Today, we have a very exciting guest, Dr. Seagal Ben-Parath. Dr. Ben-Parath is professor of education at the University of Pennsylvania, where she's also an associate member of the political science department and the philosophy department. Dr. Ben-Parath serves as an executive committee member of the Andrea Mitchell Center for the Study of Democracy and is currently a fellow at the Edmund J. Soffer Center for Ethics at Harvard University. Her published works include Making Up Our Mind, What School Choice is Really About, and Free Speech on Campus. Dr. Ben Parath, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. Dr. Ben Parath, you served as chair of Penn's Committee on Open Expression. What did you find to be the most common misconceptions concerning the issue of free speech on campus during your time in that role? Well, that's a great question, Jeremy. And yes, I did uh, start doing this work at, in 2015 when things were already heating up in terms of concerns about controversial speakers and disinvitations and things that have ramped up later on in the, in the uh, year afterwards. I think probably the most pressing misconception that I encountered when I started this work was... First off, the perception that is becoming quite common in the public that uh, universities and colleges are places where free speech is threatened. And in fact, uh, I really have always found universities and, and college, you know, college campuses, whether they are public or private, you know, residential or commuter, the whole big range of campuses that we have in this country, uh, I've always found them to be one of the most avid protectors of the First Amendment, uh, institutions that are most uh, committed to the protection and enhancement of open expression of all the institutions that we have in this country. So it seems to me that the perception that, you know, is a result of our political disagreements around particular events and is a result of some very uh, widely publicized and unfortunate incidents of uh, suppression of speech, as well as some cultural changes, etc. So there are various reasons to that. But all in all, what ends up happening is that the public perceives the university as a place where speech is suppressed, whereas in fact, the university is really a place where speech is the cornerstone of our work, 
we really depend on open thought, open inquiry, and open expression uh, as really the most basic tool for our work. Most significantly, I think, we just misrepresent universities in the way that they are portrayed in the public. And similarly, we misrepresent Mm -hmm. students as lacking a commitment to open expression, whereas I think sometimes they might interpret the, the protections needed to open expression differently than older generations. Their commitment to open expression is, in fact, quite uh, unshaken. You've described uh, the idea of inclusive freedom. Uh, how can this idea ease campus tensions and, and reestablish free expression as a crucial tenant of higher education? Well, inclusive freedom is really an idea that tries to describe the way that I see universities currently operating and the way that they can operate in ideal settings. And this is really the idea that we ought to give equal weight to the commitment to free inquiry and the commitment to an inclusive climate, that both of these um, principles or goals or ideas are uh, uh, commitments that we need to enact simultaneously and that we cannot prioritize one over the other. Mm. So basically, the tensions that we are seeing around open expression in the last few years have to do with the fact that free speech itself has been politicized. At the same time, we see people who are um, concerned about controversial, incendiary, and sometimes even hate-based speech, which is, of course, protected under the U.S. legal code, speech is going to be permitted on campus and is going to be um, uh, creating these tensions or these senses of uh, rejection and indignity among them, right? And so basically, these are the two views, right? The two views are, should we prioritize the rights to expression on the one side, or should we prioritize the inclusivity and the uh, equal standing that we offer to everyone? And I really see inclusive freedom as the way in which we allow for both to happen when we permit or when we uh, recognize that for open expression to really operate in an effective way, we have to create the conditions, right? And so individuals from diverse perspectives and um, uh, ideologies and backgrounds, et cetera, should feel and know that they are welcome to express their views on our campus, right? And so that really requires that the campus expresses this dual commitment to both open expression and inclusion in a very practical way. I'd love to read a quote. This is from Dr. Ben Sass, who's been a big fan of CLT, a friend, and his book, which was a New York Times bestseller, Them, Uh, why we hate each other and how to heal. But I would love to get your reaction to this because I know his thoughts on this. A lot of eyeballs saw what he was saying. He said, the fact that college campuses are now among the most intellectually intolerant spaces in America should concern us deeply. It sounds like from what you've said uh, a few minutes ago that you would disagree with that. But why is this, I'm wondering, why is this perception uh, out there that, that the senator uh, is, is holding and writing about? 
Well, I would say that at this moment, I am uh, significantly more concerned about the intolerance of thought in the U.S. Senate than I am on uh, <laughs> college campuses. <laughs> but uh, to be more, uh, to answer more directly the quote that you just read, Jeremy, I would say that there is, in fact, an ideological bias in the makeup of some selective college campuses that are more visible in the public domain, right? Mm. So you can look at the caters you have, such as the party registration, where this is public information, you know, some states publicize that. Or if you look at uh, donations to parties, so various types of data that you can find available. And you can discern from that that there are significantly uh, larger numbers on some college campuses of individuals who support the Democratic Party over the Republican Party. And so uh, out of that, people draw the conclusion that campuses are left-leaning I actually think that this is really misguided. So uh, uh, there is an ideological bias in the uh, makeup of the faculty in various college campuses. And this ideological bias, you know, tracks some other biases that we have, such as uh, uh, generally levels of education and party affiliation, or even just being uh, closer to the coasts where you find more colleges and you also find more people who are left-leaning, right? So it's not mm. that colleges do something to you that makes you necessarily progressive or makes you vote for the Democratic Party. Uh, and there are actually quite uh, well-done studies that show that students don't tend to change in significant numbers. You know, they're um, ideological uh, beliefs or their values as a result of attending college. So I think that the perception is a perception that's, first of all, just misguided as a result of the uh, breakdown of party affiliation among the faculty in some colleges where it's publicized. And I also think just an overall inclination among the leadership uh, in the Republican Party, including Ben Sass, who uh, see the universities as part and parcel of the broader uh, institutional structure that includes the free press and some other institutions in the American public domain, which uh, they seem to feel uh, have an ideological bias that they are looking to expose. I actually worry that even if there is an ideological bias to expose in some instances, that we are undermining important democratic institutions, including the free press and research and teaching universities uh, as part of this effort to, to show some kind of bias. Now, this is not to say, Jeremy, that there aren't cases and even, you know, a significant number of cases where we can see that people are worrying that if they say their true, you know, if they admit, so to speak, their true views uh, that are minority views on their university campuses, they might be ostracized. But I really think that these are more social issues that we can work on at a lower level rather than try to repudiate, you know, the higher education sector overall as if it's being uh, sensorial 
or unfair towards a large part of the population. From our, our very first uh, episode that we did here uh, with Dr. Robert P. George over at Princeton University, uh, a common theme uh, here at Anchored has included the notion that the United States has become increasingly polarized. I, I doubt that many people would push back on this idea. Um, and we lack a common language for discussing and debating the critical issues of our time. Uh, I'm wondering what aspect uh, of education do you think is fundamental to restoring civil discourse in the United States? Well, I'm a huge advocate of civic education at the K-12. Um, even if we don't agree on what universities are and what they should do, which I hope we can agree on, but even uh, until we do that, I think there is a significant support in this country for public schools and their mission in preparing students for their various uh, social roles as they grow up. And I think civic education broadly construed, but also really training students in the habits of democracy. So really teaching people from a young age to see themselves as members of their communities and members of their nation and to understand the makeup of this country in all of its uh, diversity of perspectives and values mm -hmm. and uh, aspirations and visions, right? So if we are able to encourage uh, teachers and students and to support teachers in the effort to prepare students for an open and honest civic dialogue as uh, a key tool in their uh, preparation to be democratic citizens. I think that would be uh, really probably the most central uh, step forward, the most important step forward than, that we can take in strengthening our democracy. Of course, there are various, you know, institutional changes that we might think about or other changes. But I think in terms of just rebuilding our civic culture or recreating, rethreading, so to speak, the civic fabric of this nation that is really so polarized, uh, we have to start early and we have to support teachers in this work. Yeah, that's great. I, I love that. Um, so, and we talk a lot about civics here as well. And I think on, on a couple of the episodes, uh, I've pointed out uh, an NBC article from a couple of years ago where they, they did their own, own study and, and uh, discovered that only about two thirds, uh, or excuse me, one, one third uh, of Americans can actually pass the same uh, citizenship test that, that immigrants take uh, in the natural That I had to take, right? So, right. yeah. <laughs> so I know, I mean, every time that I read these surveys about not being able to name the three branches of government, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm well ahead here. <laughs> I'm a brand new citizen, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Although I will just say, to encourage you about this, Jeremy, there is a significant change afoot in this regard uh, in political knowledge. If you look at the last year's surveys, there is a significant, significant rise in okay. individuals' abilities to, you know, name the branches of government yeah, or yeah. do all sorts of more complicated things regard in regards to um, the structure of government here. And this has to do not so much with improvements in education, but with actually a greater uh, investment in and commitment to participating in democracy, right? So mm. it's action and that leads to interest and better knowledge. 
And, and by the way, I, I've never been to a naturalization ceremony, but I, I've heard they're so powerful and so beautiful. It's and so I, wonderful. I have to tell you, I really oh. recommend, I brought my son who was, oh. uh, who taught me towards the uh, uh, exam <laughs> that I had to take. He was in school here. I, of course, didn't attend school here. Then he came for my ceremony and it's quite yeah. moving. Highly recommended as a shared civic event. You write and discuss school choice at length, uh, and you've noted that school choice in education is rooted in historical precedent. Uh, But what are some of the most overlooked aspects of school choice policy today? Well, I think really, I would say the most overlooked component probably is that the question of whether you are for or against school choice is a completely misconstrued question. This country has always had school choice since colonial time. There is no even legible way of asking, are you a supporter or an opponent of school choice? It doesn't make sense. What we need to ask is, what ways would you like to design choice policies and what goals do you have in mind when you are designing them, right? So people in this country always have a choice regarding schools. They can move if they can afford it to a different school district, which is going to be significantly different. They can pay tuition. They can homeschool. There are all of these different ways in which people in this country can, in fact, participate in various ways in school choice. And in addition to that, they have significant choices within the school right? So they can join an IB program. They can do a a creative arts program. I mean, so even within the school uh, itself, there are different options. But all of these, both the, you know, choosing an institution and choosing a program, they are not offered to everyone and they are not available to everyone in the same way. And they promote various goals, right, which are not actually publicly agreed on, you know, they are more ad hoc kind of things Mm -hmm. that communities and institutions generate, which I actually think is perfectly fine. Education in the United States is a very local endeavor. So what we need to ask ourselves is, how are you designing these options, these choices, Mm -hmm. and who are you making them available to? And in an aggregate way, right? When you look at the different choices available to different people, what overall visions of education are you promoting, right? So what kind of overall look, overall framing of the system are you going to have once all of these choices are made available? And I think this is something that we don't ask often enough because we focus on the question of whether you like choice or you do not like choice. And that's really, uh, Mm. you know, that's not a useful framing. So we always like to ask our guests on Anchored about their own leisure reading. We want to promote a culture of reading. We love books here. We, we, We actually are kind of a weird company that we actually start every single day by reading out loud together. Last quarter, we read The Souls of Black Folk. We're actually doing Aesop's Fables right now. Um, it's, it's a big part of CLT company culture. I'm wondering, what are you reading? Have you read it before? Well, so I like reading in Hebrew, which is my, you know, my mother's tongue. Whenever I can get books in Hebrew, uh, I read those first. Of course, 
I haven't been able to go home for a long time now because of the pandemic. And so I don't yeah. have any new books. I haven't had a lot of time to read for leisure recently, but I'm actually hosting a speaker series about free speech at the University mm. of Pennsylvania this year. And I was reading for that um, a book about one of our most recent guests, which is uh, Derek Blick. Um, a very interesting guy, a currently a graduate student at the University of Chicago and a former white nationalist. And uh, there was a uh, book written about him by Elie Saslow called Rising Out of Hatred, mm. where uh, he talks about the ways in which he was raised in a very extremist household and community and how uh, actually in college and being exposed to new ideas and new people, he learned um, to think in more complex ways about his own upbringing. And that was um, uh, just, I read that in preparation for the conversation with Derek Black, and I found it to be a very uh, striking book in terms of the personal story there, but also a very strong perspective on the importance of free speech, right? So the importance of allowing people to voice their opinions, even when they are biased or discriminatory or, you know, or hate-based, and to try and have conversations around those uh, and sometimes be able to persuade them to change their minds, right? But uh, learning something in the process. The question I'm always most curious to ask, uh, is there one text in, in your life that has been most influential on you, you know, either personally or professionally? Wow, that's, that's uh, a big question. I think one thing that I try often to tell my students uh, and, uh, you know, other people who may have an interest in education in some way it's a small text by John Dewey called Creative Democracy. So this is a text where that he wrote when he was really quite old already. And it's quite moving and quite, I would say, innovative in its approach. And he's talking about democracy uh, as a way of life. I always find it to be very inspiring to think about that. Uh, well, this is, again, Dr. Sigal Ben-Parath, professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Dr. Ben-Parath, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. We look forward to having you join us next week. CLT, reconnecting knowledge and virtue.